you know, easy subject to preach on, marriage, because we're all good at it. And uh, it just comes so naturally. And, of course, there's when you bring up a subject like marriage, there's no wounds in the room over a subject like that. All, you know, clean, fresh, happy thoughts that come to us when we think about marriage. And, yes, I do live in the same world as you, and I'm also painfully sarcastic at times, which is usually okay until you're doing a funeral. And then some people just don't appreciate sarcasm at funerals. I don't understand. I have a morbid sense of humor. It fits right in with a good funeral. And some people don't laugh. I don't know why. But here we are. Um, I was checking out at HEB this week, and just in time for Valentine's Day, we have from the editors of Time magazine, The Science of Marriage. So if this doesn't do it for you, whatever's in here, there's science behind this stuff now, um, which is kind of funny. But uh, there are some, there's some good stuff in here. There's some good stuff. But uh, um, what was one of them? Uh, yeah, page 44. I thought this was good. Or actually terrible but so this is this is ways 10 ways to divorce proof your marriage and uh number one realize that if you can agree on what constitutes a clean room you can agree on anything okay uh number two i don't recommend this one to you if you're irritated by your partner Imagine him as a small child. Okay, why, why does it put him there? Why doesn't it put her there? Him or her? No, it just says him. And my wife already does this. It doesn't help. It doesn't. This is not helpful advice. This happens all the time at our house, and it's not helpful. But it is scientific, apparently. All right. Um, what was our What was our quote that we agreed on in the class? Benjamin Franklin. Okay. Keep your <laughs> Keep your eyes wide open before marriage, half shut afterwards. Benjamin Franklin. Actually, that's not bad advice. Uh, okay. Where were we? So, what I want to do or try to do today is, is sort of take you back into a very ancient concept. It's, it's a biblical construct or idea called covenant. And I was you know, explaining to the kids a little bit the difference between a, a biblical covenant and a deal, right? If it's if we if we write a contract and somebody breaks the terms of the contract, you're you're not obligated to fulfill your side of the contract, right? A covenant, as we see them set forward in Scripture, is very different. God essentially says, uh, "I will." 
I will fulfill the terms of this covenant regardless of whether you are uh, compliant or not. I will be faithful, he says. And so he gives us this as a model for understanding our human relationships, particularly that of marriage. And to just sort of begin where we were with the kids, the idea is this, that we were created in God's image as men and women. We're called together in marriage, male and female, to reflect who God is. To love each other covenantally, not in the terms of a business deal. So that uh, when I totally mess up with my wife in our relationship, the deal's not off. She's stuck with me. <laughs> that works out well for me. See? Um, but this idea of covenantal love uh, over and against circumstantial love. And so I want us to look uh, first this morning at an actual covenant in Scripture, and we're going to sort of break out some of the pieces of this covenant and then, and then roll that towards marriage and see what are, what are the similarities between a biblical covenant between God and His people and the covenant we are called to in marriage. So I'm going to begin in Genesis chapter... Let me make sure I got this right. 15. If you're, if you're going through one of the small groups with this sermon series, you will be uh, carving up a, a passage from Genesis chapter 17. It's the other uh, establishment of the covenant or renewal of the covenant with Abraham. God, God goes through this twice with him. And uh, we're going to look at one of those here, and then you'll look at a different one in the small group. I thought that would be more interesting than looking at the same one twice, for whatever that's worth. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15 this morning, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through, oh, I'll probably actually stop at the end of verse 18, because you don't really need to hear about the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, etc. So, verses 1 through 18. Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. I'm sorry, Abram. We'll get to that in a minute. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall all your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, etc. It's not going to be edifying to you if I read all that, I don't think, for this pur- for the purposes of this discussion. Although there is some interesting history in those people groups, if you are into that kind of thing. So, key word in that passage, covenant. On that day, God made a covenant with Abram. We want to understand what that is and what that means. And it is sometimes difficult for us to assimilate these ancient customs and sort of bring them into the present and understand how they relate to life in the real world today. So how do I want to say this? There's a ton theologically in this passage. It is packed. It is loaded. I'm not going to try to exhaustively explain all of Genesis chapter 15 to you today. What I'm going to try to do is just is sort of just look at the components of a covenant, of a biblical covenant, and then we'll roll that into the context of marriage and life and try to make it make sense for today. So primary distinction between a covenant relationship and a contract is love. Love is the primary difference. If I make a deal with you that is a business deal, it's not because I love you. It's because we both agree it will be mutually beneficial to us to enter into this arrangement. Um, Covenant relationship is founded on love. This is the basis for why God does this. It's actually the basis for why God does anything, but for the sake of today, we're going to keep that under the umbrella of covenant. So what are the components of a biblical covenant as they are expressed in this passage? First, A biblical covenant is initiated by God for the purpose of conveying blessing. And and 
please remember it all begins with love. But it's initiated by God. Who comes to whom in this passage? God comes to Abram, right? Um, The word of the Lord came to Abram, verse 1. God seeks him out. He's already called him out. That's Genesis chapter 12, I guess. Um, He's called Abram out of the land of Ur. Love that. Ur. And then he brings him to Canaan. And then he comes to him in this context. And Abram's already and Sarai have already been through a little bit of history together at this point. Uh, some good, some not so good. And here they are, and God says this to Abram. So it's a biblical covenant comes at God's initiative. He is the initiator of the covenant, and it is done for the purpose of blessing his people and calling his people then to reflect the nature of God in the world. So he comes to us, he changes us, and calls us to be a reflection of his love and grace to others. All right. Step one, or component one, if we're breaking it down that way. Um, Initiated by God as a means of blessing. A covenant involves a vow and brings about a change in identity. So God makes a vow to Abraham and, or to Abram, excuse me, and then he says something to Abram that is a shift in who Abram is. He says, you're going to be a father. I remember that moment. Um, and it's pretty powerful when you learn you're going to be a dad. It's terrifying and joyful all at the same time. And in this encounter, God basically says to Abram, you're going to be a dad. I'm changing the very nature of who you are. I'm adding a whole new dimension to your person. I'm I'm changing your identity from just this guy who's married to Sarai to a dad. That's what's going to happen. So later in the in the next renewal of the covenant with Abram, God actually changes his name. You see another change of identity in Abram from Abram to Abraham. Uh, again, I'm not going to get into all the details of this passage, so we're going to keep going. A covenant, a biblical covenant, includes a sign. In this case, God uses a, a natural sign. He's look up at the heavens. If you can count all those stars, that will be the number of descendants you will have. Billions and billions. Was it, is that what how Carl Sagan said it? Billions and billions. So, God says to Abram, "It's your heritage is great." Um, and here's the sign. 
Every time you look up at those stars, I want you to think about this day. When you had nothing, and you had no future, you had no prospect for progeny, I want you to remember that my promise to you was to fill up your family like I've filled up that sky. And so there's a sign. The biblical covenant instills or imputes or transfers faith. There is a a conduit established to our hearts through a biblical covenant that brings our faith to life. That is part of what happens in biblical covenant relationship. Uh, It actually says in verse 6, He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This faith that was imputed to Abraham through God's initiating his covenant with him. A biblical covenant always involves a sacrifice. I'm going to try to do this quickly. Adam and Eve, when they sinned and were expelled from the garden, what was the first thing God did? He covered them with animal skins, which means somebody had to die. That death pointed to a future atonement for our sins that would come through God's promise to atone for our sins through the Messiah, through Jesus. Noah, lots of animals died, lots of people died. And when Noah, when the the ark finally came to rest on dry land, what was the first thing Noah did? He made a sacrifice uh, of those animals that he had just saved. Ironic, isn't it? Um, When God comes to Abraham and renews the covenant with Abraham, there's a sacrifice. We'll just jump to the cross. When God fulfills his covenant promises in Christ, there's a sacrifice. Well, I could go to Moses. When God renews his covenant with Moses, the the sign of that covenant was the Passover. The, the sacrifice of the lamb, the blood on the door of the home. Uh, these are all covenant signs. There's a sacrifice. There's blood. <laughs> Biblical love is bloody. We had a, a good... Uh, discourse over that in our marriage small group this morning that sometimes marriage uh, can get bloody and figuratively speaking we hope right we don't want anything bad to happen Um, a biblical covenant involves a sacrifice and these all point to the ultimate sacrifice of christ on the cross god is essentially saying if you look at this covenant with abram what is Abram doing when the covenant is being made? He's sleeping, right? He's sound asleep, and God is the one who's moving through the halves of the animals. Here's, here's what was going on. Uh, when a business deal was made in the ancient world, they would take an animal, and they would, they would sacrifice it, and they would cut it in half, and they would say, half is mine, half is yours. And then the two parties would walk between the halves of the animal, 
And the, the implication was, may it be done unto me, as it has been done unto this animal, if I break my terms of this deal. Okay? That was one form of covenant in the ancient world. So God says, Abram, you just stay right there and watch me. I'm going to pass through these halves. May it be done unto my son if you break the terms of this covenant. That is effectively what God was saying by doing this. By keeping Abram asleep and passing through the halves by himself, he was saying, it's on me. I've got this. I will fulfill the terms of this covenant regardless of what you do. And so every covenant involves a sign. It instills faith. It involves a sacrifice. It includes an enduring future aspect. It is forward-looking, in other words. It is, God is saying to Abram, it's not just about now. There's a future that I'm promising to fulfill for you and those who come after you in this line of faith. God is binding himself to the future of his people in the terms of covenant. And covenant includes terms of material provision that God will provide for his people. He will take care of them. And this comes about in various forms throughout different covenant renewals. And let me try to explain a basic concept about biblical covenant that is important to me and I realize may not be very important to you. So hang with me for a second. Okay? When God created Adam and Eve, he set them in the garden and he gave them certain terms. This is the deal. You can do whatever you want. You just may not eat of that tree over there of its fruit. Deal? Deal. That will we will call, for the sake of simplicity, the first covenant. All right? Well, Adam and Eve broke the terms of that deal. And God said, okay, you can't be here anymore, but I'm going to make a provision for your death uh, that will be represented by these animals but will be fulfilled in the future by the Messiah who will come and he gives this cryptic little bit to Eve when he talks to her about the consequences of her sin and says, he will strike your heel, but that your seed, your descendant, will crush his head, the head of evil. That He's talking about Jesus. All right. That is the second covenant. It's called theologically the covenant of grace, That covenant with Adam and Eve after the fall into sin is renewed various times throughout what we call the Old Testament. It's renewed with Noah. It's renewed twice with Abraham. Once with Abram, then with Abraham. It's renewed with Moses. It's renewed with David. And it is finally fulfilled in Christ. What covenant did Christ say he came to inaugurate? Anyone remember? He holds the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. We're going to call that, instead of calling it the third covenant, we're going to call that the final covenant. That that second covenant of grace begins at the fall of Adam and Eve and continues until the second coming of Christ, 
We are under that covenant now in our relationship with God. We're under the covenant of grace. That final covenant began at the cross when Christ made that atoning sacrifice for our sin. He ushered in the beginning of the new covenant. So we now live under the umbrella of two covenants, the second covenant of grace and the final covenant of the new covenant. When Christ returns, which some of us may hope is sooner rather than later, uh, but not before I win the chili cook-off again. I mean, we, want, we want to see that name back on the apron, I think. But anyway, when Christ returns, the covenant of grace will come to its conclusion and we will be ushered into the fullness of the new covenant. So that is the umbrella of covenantal theology as I understand it. As best I can make sense out of this book, that's how it all works. Does that make sense? Very important to me. I realize you might not care very much. That's okay. I just wanted you to know where I'm coming from in all this covenant business. So, we've seen one example in Genesis chapter 15 of of some of the components of a biblical covenant. How are these reflected in marriage? When God calls us into a covenant relationship as husband and wife, what are the, what are the parallels? Well, they are many, and we will just sort of jump through them real quick. Marriage is a means of blessing. Ironically, our society doesn't tend to say these things about marriage, right? When you see the groomsmen at the wedding, they're all like, dude, your freedom is dead. Your life is over. It's the ball and chain, right? You get all these negative comments about what marriage is. Ironically, Time Magazine has several chapters in this little thing about the health benefits of marriage, the social benefits of marriage, the emotional health benefits of marriage. Uh, It's a blessing. It was designed to be a blessing. It is a blessing. It doesn't always feel like a blessing, uh, but that's what it is biblically. Marriage is a means of blessing. In a wedding, there is an exchange of vows and signs in the same way that in a biblical covenant there's 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 a vow and a sign a wedding brings about a change in identity some brides choose to change their last name as a as a reflection of this change in identity in much the same way that God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah we have a change in identity that happens when we get married. We go from single to married. It's a change in who we are or in the identity of who we are. Um, A marriage, the exchange of vows, if both parties are paying attention and fully engaged in this process, should instill faith in each other. The fact that I told Kathy that I'm in this for the long haul, should increase her faith in me. That I meant that, I'm going to do my darndest to fulfill my word. Should 
establish and build her faith in me. I, I still have questions. About, I saw that look in her eye when she said, until death do us part. Right? I know she meant that. It scares me. Um, but the vows should instill faith in each other. Lois, why aren't you laughing? Because <laughs> you'll help her if she needs help. <laughs> You're here for your friend. I get it. It's okay. Um, marriage will involve sacrifice <laughs> or blood, if you will, metaphorically speaking. Um, and and it, it can be said, I think this is fair game, which this may be a little PG-13, but when husband and wife come together, their, their bloodstreams cross, right? I mean, there's, that's intimacy. It's physical. And, and that happens. So there is blood, if you will. There's a, there, and there is sacrifice. No one can argue that there's marriage without sacrifice. I mean, maybe Jason could, because it's just eternal bliss for him every day. But, you know, no, <laughs> ignorance is bliss. Good. Um, marriage, a wedding, includes an enduring future aspect. We are expecting that this couple will come together and, and establish a family together, regardless of whether there's kids involved. There's, there's this enduring future aspect to their relationship for better or for worse, they are supposed to say to each other. Um, I, I don't mean to dissuade any of you who may be getting married in the future from doing this if you so desire. But most of the vows that people try to come up with when they try to write their own vows are terrible. And they forget to say things like in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer and they almost always forget to say until death do us part. And I just want to go, honey... This isn't, this isn't a fairy book. This stuff is real. And you're gonna need a vow that says, for better or for worse. You're gonna need it all. So, if you want to divert from the traditional wording, great. Keep the traditional ideas. Because they're very important. This stuff is not for wimps. It's real. And it's difficult. And it's painful. And however, all those things being true, marriage can, should, yield some of the greatest blessings life has to offer. In the togetherness, the unity, the, the blessing of children. <laughs> they're just a blessing. You all know how I feel if you have one or two or more. All right. There's an enduring future aspect for better or for worse. And our wedding vows should account for or include material provision that we are here for each other. 
for richer or for poorer. I actually had a bride choke on richer one time. Like, literally, like the wedding kind of stopped for a minute, and then everybody howls in laughter, and yeah, like I like it's the repeat after me part for richer, for poor, for <coughs> she had to turn away. When she finally was okay, and that was obvious, then the whole place just like, wow. I made her say it though. Like you're not getting out of that. All right. So, a marriage should, does, reflect many of the aspects and components of biblical covenant. Let me take you to the two passages I read to the kids real quick. Genesis 1, 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We need each other. We are equally created in the eyes of God. When he created Adam, he was not finished. He saved his best work for last. And our society, most if not all societies, have failed to recognize this equality over the centuries, uh, sometimes in really tragic and terrible ways. Um, This is biblical truth. We are created equal, male and female, to reflect together the image of God, to show the world who God is by the way we come together as one, which... I jumped a passage there, but Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I said that in church. Um, marriage is a call to the covenant nature of God. We come together to attempt to reflect who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally in relationship, one God. We come together, husband and wife, to become one as a reflection of the Trinity and the nature of God. The marriage covenant gives us security and freedom. Again, Our society probably most associates marriage, at least the men at the, in the groomsmen's party, with the ball and chain. That's the image. Um, ironically, it is the opposite. It is, it is God's covenant commitment to us that gives us true freedom to be human. Without his covenant commitment to us, our sin is eternally damning. It's it's a bad, grim picture. Once he has made, established that covenant and made that commitment to us, we are free. We're free to get it right, and we're free to get it wrong. Our sin does not then damn us 
to hell. It may have some ugly consequences. There is still reality all around us. But we are eternally connected to God through Christ. Because of his covenant commitment to us, we have freedom. We have security and we have freedom. Marriage does the same thing, believe it or not. When we commit to each other, we give each other freedom to be ourselves, which will not always be pretty. But it will allow us to grow and to, over time, hopefully better reflect who God is. All right. The marriage covenant gives us security and freedom, and the marriage covenant calls us to love and grow. As painful as that may come, we are called into this life together. Um, what is it that the, uh, the eHarmony commercial says? That we've evaluated your future mate on seven areas of compatibility. Liars! There are no two human beings who are compatible. Can we just get that out of the way right now? There are no two human beings that are compatible. That's a, it's a myth. It's crazy. You have one self-willed sinner trying to be married to another self-willed sinner. It's going to get ugly. And it teaches us about the nature of God. That he has literally married himself to a people who will not get it right. Who will sin and fail and stumble and fall. And he says, I will love you anyway. In spite of your humanness, I love you. And we in marriage are given that opportunity to say that to each other. To extend that grace that has been extended to us. The purpose of marriage is to reflect to the world, to ourselves and the world around us, who God is. God is love. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we are humbled by your word as well as by your endless capacity for righteousness, grace, forgiveness, and love. We thank you that in Christ you have shown us what love is and that you call us to come together in your name and reflect to the world who you are. Lord, we confess that we need you in order to do that. We need your grace, your forgiveness, and most of all, your love to fill us to overflowing, that we might give a glimpse to someone else of who you are. Thank you for that grace that is ours in Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.